This podcast is a member of the Place to Be Nation family. Visit us at placetobenation.com, the only place to be in your pop culture world. Discretionary viewer participation is advised for the following professional wrestling exhibition. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 33 of Greetings from Allentown. I am your host, Peter Winson. And today, we'll be taking a look at WCW Saturday Night for the first time in 30 episodes. It's not since episode 3 has I, have I covered WCW Saturday Night. This is the center stage version that we all know and love from 1992. It's June 20th, 1992, the same day as the Beach Blast pay-per-view. And it's part of the reason why this show meets the criteria of what I like to cover on this, which is the one-hour program. I don't want to cover certainly a three-hour Raw. I can't even sit through that. In fact, I can barely make it through a three-hour pay-per-view at this point. At No Mercy earlier this week, I didn't tune in until about 8.45 Eastern Time because I just don't have it in me to hang out for these ultra-long shows. So this is a special one-hour episode of WCW Saturday Night during a time of change in WCW, which it always seemed like something was happening in WCW land. Either somebody was making a play to take charge or somebody had just taken over or somebody was on the way out and of course in this case it's grandpa bill watts excuse me cowboy bill watts who had just taken over at this taping from kip allen fry i'll get to him in a second but first a few plugs just to get them out of the way here the best way to reach me so it seems is on twitter at gf allentown pod where i'd like to think i'm fairly responsive on there. I had a few comments about the No Mercy main event the other night with Braun Strowman and Brock Lesnar, which it didn't seem like it all added up there. There was certainly something missing, and I blame Brock Lesnar for that. You can reach me via Gmail. Email? Gmail? Whatever. I I just call it Gmail now because, well, hardly anybody... Hardly anybody ever sends email anymore. The only emails I ever get from friends are about the NFL wins pool that I'm in or the Major League Baseball wins pool that is wrapping down now, which I'm sure I'll get to at some point. It's greetingsfromallentown at gmail.com. Facebook.com slash greetingsfromallentown takes you to wherever the heck I am on there. And of course, I am proud to be a part of the Pro Wrestling Only feed in association with Place to Be Nation and do your Amazon shopping via the link at place to be nation.com slash amazon and at place to be nation today as i am taping this another one of the jason greenhouse articles booking a pay-per-view before the pay-per-view happened which was in this case the 1987 royal rumble a thought exercise as to how that show would have gone down obviously it has andre the giant emerging victorious in the Royal Rumble to kind of set things up. And I really like the way Jason set up the Andre turn without turning him heel at that time in the match or anything like that. 
So that was a lot of fun, and that, that's at placetobenation.com to check out that article. Some business from last week that I kind of want to finish up here, because I actually had started taping this show before I knew of Bobby Heenan's death, and I kind of threw out the intro that I had recorded over a week ago because it seemed like the right thing to do to do a tribute show for Bobby Heenan. It's not obviously not under the best circumstances, but I'm certainly glad that I went through and covered as much of his career that I could. And it's not like I could pull a bunch of AWA stuff because I'm just not as familiar with the pre-1984 Bobby Heenan. I did allude to his pairing with Nick Bockwinkle because it would be insane to do a whole thing about Bobby Heenan at the time of his death and not reference his work in the American Wrestling Association. And yes, I this is kind of like an audio version of a subtweet about something, and I think you could probably figure out what I'm talking about. There was a certain high-profile writer on a very major website who writes about wrestling and did not mention Nick Bockwinkle in a basically tribute or eulogy or whatever you want to call it article about Bobby Heenan. And I just want to throw that out there, how kind of ridiculous that was. That song that I did at the end of the Heenan tribute was one that um, I really wanted to do something like that. And in case you're wondering what the uh, song is that played underneath that, it is called Birdland by the weather report no this is this has nothing to do with my baltimore orioles who finished with a losing record this year so tough times in birdland which is kind of you know the general area of baltimore orioles fans i consider myself the governor of massachusetts birdland seeing this though you know there's not a lot of orioles fans where i live but in any event Birdland is the name of the song. I recommend that you go and download the song. It's available on iTunes, just as this podcast is as well. So you feel free to give me a review while you're there. A five star is always appreciated for that and for the pro wrestling only feed as well. I had actually first heard that song long after it had first come out in the late 70s as part of a YouTube video that I actually have up on my channel that's called Larry's Best. It was a thing that one of the local TV stations here in Boston, Channel 5, did at the time of Larry Bird's retirement, and they played about five minutes of highlights of Larry Bird with that song playing underneath, which makes sense because of the name of the song and it being Larry Bird and all that, but I just thought it was a nice little instrumental tune to pay homage to the brain and just his manic, wonderful 1992 Royal Rumble call. Now, as for WCW 1992, this is the start of Bill Watts running things, which he would up until very early 1993, where he was fired effectively for things that he had said before he took over WCW. And without getting into all that, it first of all, it seems like I want to check in on Bill Watts every 10 to 15 episodes because I covered his war with Jim Cornette in episode 11 in Mid-South 1984, his war with Eddie Gilbert and his strong anti-communist stance in episode 21 from UWF television in May of 1986. 
So it seems like kind of a running thing we have here. And in 1992, he's taking over for Kip Allen Fry, a guy who has this odd mystique among internet wrestling culture because he was there for so little time and he did things that everybody sort of enjoyed. But when you take a step back, he was burning through money at a really alarming rate and signing guys to contracts that were grossly inflated and were just not sustainable. I'm glad that Jesse Ventura is doing commentary on WCW shows from 92 through 94. God knows in that worldwide episode that I did from May of 1994, I love his pairing with Tony Schiavone. But he was making way too much money for what he was going to be bringing to the table at that time. And apparently Watts called Kip Fry Francis Ford Kippola, which I don't quite understand. I, I Francis Ford Coppola is a great director. I don't know if he had some sort of reputation for overspending on The Godfather or Apocalypse Now or any of his other films, but if he did, it's not like uh, those movies sucked or anything like that. So Watts is in, and he has a mandate to cut costs. But here's the thing, is that the old cowboy, after he sold his stake in the UWF and then waited and waited and waited to actually get paid on that by the Crockett's and then later the Turner people because Crockett never paid him the amount. He was never made whole as part of the sale there. He had not watched wrestling from the point that the UWF ends all the way up to the point when he comes back. So there's this five-year gap here from 87 to 92, where he is not in touch with the product. And you think about the way wrestling evolved during that time period. There were so many changes, and it was happening pretty quickly. Wrestling that you saw in the mid to late 80s had changed quite a bit, even by early 1992 or mid-1992, which is where we are here. Five years, there were more changes back then. Nowadays, you look at Raw now and you look at Raw from 2012. Now, granted, it's the same company and it's pretty much the same people running it, the same TV producer and all that. Very little has changed. There's been almost no evolution in the way the product is presented, but it was different back then. And for whatever reason, when Watts comes in, he turns everything back to the 70s, which seemed kind of strange because Mid-South felt very much with the program and very revolutionary. Their television was very good even up through 1986. The production, they had music videos. You know, granted you would have misspellings like when Michael Hayes had didn't have the E in his last name and there were other little minor errors, but I'm not going to quibble with it because his son Joel Watts was a pretty good TV producer doing the UWF shows back then. But to try and make wrestling what it was in the 1970s with no mats on the outside, no top rope moves, which they tried to give a logic to of, oh, it'll give the heels heat when they cheat by coming off the top rope. Well, what he fails to consider is you have guys like Brian Pillman, you have guys like Ricky Steamboat, who kind of need to come off the top rope as baby faces because it is a part of their general moveset. 
It's Steamboat's finishers, a high cross body off the top rope. You have a light heavyweight division, which was soon to go away, where if you take away the top rope, there's really nothing for them to do to really kind of separate themselves out. And it was a very stupid rule, and the top rope thing was rescinded later in the year. I believe it was at Clash 20 where there was like a call-in vote or whatever, and I believe it was 89% of the fans, which is almost sounds like an Iraqi election is how that went, an old school Iraqi election. There were no mats on the outside of the ring. You're very accustomed in seeing these blue mats on WWF television in the late, late 80s, and you would eventually see them in WCW. Well, those disappear, and you don't see them on the show, and it actually comes into play in one of the matches at one point, although, honestly, it, it just seems like a stupid thing to do to take out the it was kind of just a safety thing to have that there with all that said though he did have some good ideas when he came in with his infamous 10 commandments which parv and chad campbell went over in great detail on their beach blast 92 where the big boys play episode it was actually episode number 77 where they laid out Watts's Ten Commandments, as recounted in the Wrestling Observer newsletter. And as I said, some of them were good in order to restore a sense of discipline to the place with regard to no-shows, with regard to being on time, stay through the entire show as you're obligated to, be there an hour early. But even those things... On the back end of this, you would end up with some short-sighted booking, like Brian Pillman, of course, never really used to his full potential, in my opinion, during his basically his entire WCW run. You had a good heel stable in the Dangerous Alliance, which was pretty much phased out around this time, because... If you'll believe it, Paul Heyman didn't get along with Bill Watts, which just seems like the most inevitable thing ever. And it has nothing to do with reasons of religion or anything like that. It's just kind of the egos of those two guys. And the Dangerous Alliance had been around for a good six to eight months at that point. They had really kind of formed at the clash the previous November. So you've had almost half a year of results. And while it made for some very good television, the gate receipts were not exactly up when the Dangerous Alliance was running over everybody. But there's enough good going on in WCW overall for it to be watchable. Like I said, you had Tony and Jesse doing commentary. Here you have the American Dream, Dusty Rhodes, alongside Jim Ross, who, of course, is still there, uh, (laughs) fetching coffee for Bill Watts and doing whatever the cowboy tells him to do, I guess. But the commentary was very good in WCW around this time. And Lance Russell is still there as well. And we see him on this program alongside Eric Bischoff in a pairing that kind of blew my mind a bit to see those two guys working together on television. And this is kind of a pregame show of sorts for Beach Blast 92, which aired at 7 o'clock on pay-per-view that night. So they have to go off the air, and anybody who ordered the pay-per-view should have to turn from that 
to Beach Blast. And actually, when you think about it, with Turner Time, the famous 6.05 start for their programming to get its own line in TV Guide, because all the 6 o'clock shows, they would be listed in one block. But if you're at 6.05, you get your own little spot in the pages of TV Guide, which pretty much everybody was subscribed to at that time. The show would actually run to 7.05, which would be five minutes after the pay-per-view started, but you're probably not missing much other than Eric Bischoff wearing that crazy Hawaiian shirt that I recall him wearing on the Beach Blast pay-per-view, which was a nice little show that I covered in detail at Section309.com. I did review that show about a year ago on the site, and of course the Ricky Steamboat, Rick Rude, 30-minute Iron Man match was a very good one, one of the best Iron Man matches that I've ever seen. I'm a proponent of them being 30-minute matches instead of 60-minute matches, and especially in this day and age where it's you know very difficult to hold one's attention for a full hour. I would be remiss if I did not mention the fact that Atlanta Braves baseball would be coming up after this on TBS. And I know that there are probably more WCW Saturday Night episodes that were cut back to an hour because of the Braves. There was always kind of a tension between wrestling fans who wanted their full two hours of wrestling and didn't care about baseball and the baseball fans who were like, get this wrestling crap off the air because I want my Braves baseball, especially in 1992 when the Atlanta Braves are one of the best teams in Major League Baseball. And just to give you an update on where they were around this time, they had not yet overcome the Cincinnati Reds' lead in the National League West, but they did gain a game on that night, June 20th, as they beat the Cincinnati Reds 2-1 as Steve Avery outdueled Tom Browning and Kent Merker closed out the game for the Braves. That closer situation for the Braves was a problem for a really, really long time, especially in, in 92 where they went through Merker. Alejandro Pena was really ineffective. and Eventually they traded for a washed-up Jeff Reardon from the Boston Red Sox. I believe they sent Nate Minchie to the Red Sox in exchange, so they, they didn't exactly pay up too much on that one. Interesting note from the game 44,636 at Atlanta Fulton County Stadium that night. So the Braves were definitely much more of a draw than WCW was. I don't know how many WCW house shows you'd have to add together from that time period to get to 44,636. But also, the game lasted only two hours and ten minutes. Imagine that in Major League Baseball today where the typical game goes over three hours, which I don't have as much of a problem with as other people, but they're doing what they can to try and cut down on that. Hey, maybe they could have Bill Watts come in and turn everything back to the 70s and just just do it that way. But on this show, this WCW Saturday Night, a one-hour edition, we have Johnny B. Bad in action. He's facing off against Richard Morton in a real kind of depressing matchup for anybody who was a fan of the Rock and Roll Express in those glory days. We have a number of update segments to do with not only... Beach Blast, but the NWA Tag Team Title Tournament, which was another Bill Watts idea that I can kind of go in more on when these segments air. We'll see the Steiners in action as well, and Cactus Jack is here in advance of his Falls Count Anywhere match against 
WCW champion Sting that took place on that Beach Blast pay-per-view. And I don't know if this would count as our feature bout, but it is on last here. It is Greg the Hammer Valentine during his little run here in WCW facing off against the Z-Man, Tom Sink. So why don't we just jump right into the show? Some strange reason it had to be. He guided me to a lot of reasons why I enjoy Dusty Rhodes on color commentary. It's not for any particular insight that he's ever had. It's that this is entertainment and he entertains me even if I don't understand what he's talking about most of the time. And about a week ago on Twitter, I I made a plea and I've made this plea many times in the past. And for those of you listening to the show, maybe you can help me out here. I have this distinct memory of Dusty Rhodes doing commentary. It had to have been much later in the 90s, based on who I'm talking about here, where Dusty, whenever he would do a match involving El Dandy, he would just be openly marking out for the guy on commentary, and it was hilarious. But yet, for all the stuff that is on YouTube through the years, all the different matches, I cannot find a single match involving El Dandy in which Dusty Rhodes is doing commentary. So if somebody could help me out here, just find one match so I can relive that memory from a quarter century ago almost, that would be great. And I thank you in advance for that. So Jim Ross, uh, he reminds us at the top of the show that Beach Blast is later. So while you might be watching this show for free on TBS, be sure you pony up for Beach Blast later on, and that would turn out to be a very good show. We welcome in the host of Family Feud, the American Dream, Dusty Rhodes. My co-host of this broadcast, he's the one and only, the legendary American Dream, Dusty Rhodes, and Dusty, welcome to center stage, my friend. Well, let me tell you more, it is wild, it's in color, and it's WCW, Saturday night. Let me tell you, Beach Blast is on us, baby, we talking about Now, as I listened to Dusty go through that intro there, for a second, I thought he said falls count anywhere on the golf course. <laughs> I'm like, why are they why are they having a match at Bushwood Country Club or whatever? Like, no, no, no. He said the Gulf Coast, because, of course, this was in Mobile, Alabama. That's one thing for WCW. They had pay-per-views in a lot of places where WWE certainly fears to trend and of course it's a southern southern company and wwe generally sticks to the big cities you know boston will get their pay-per-view i guess i guess the clash of the champions this year la is getting no mercy new york's been getting SummerSlam, and then wrestlemania is effectively whatever dome happens to be available on that day so yeah, that, that's a way for me to get pumped up. Thank you to Dusty for reminding me that it is WCW, and it is Saturday night, and that is the name of the show, WCW Saturday Night. Now, I don't want to do a lot of begging on this show, because I've already done my Dusty Rhodes doing commentary on an El Dandy match, 
But I have spent so much time in preparing for this show trying to find the original Johnny B. Bad theme song from when he first came into WCW as a heel with Theodore R. Long as his manager. It's very much similar to Tutti Frutti, the instrumental part by Little Richard, but it's not exactly the same because you get the little sax solo in the middle of it. And it was later used as the theme, or maybe it was dubbed over, I don't know. But if you watch the YouTube of the gimmick battle royal from WrestleMania X7, Gene Okerlund comes to the ring to Johnny B. Bad's original WCW music. Of course, Gene did Tutti Frutti at one point. It was either on the Piledriver album or on the wrestling album from 1985. I don't know which one. But Johnny B. Bad is a guy who gets a lot of crap from guys in the business for whatever reason. I don't know if it was the way that he responded to the Chris Benoit thing, which if you've heard anything I've had to say about it, there's really only one way to respond to what happened there. And it's pretty much what WWE did, which was to bury him completely and totally. And Mark Merrow did kind of go in on the wrestling business. And if there's anything that wrestlers don't like to do, it's self-examination and looking in the mirror. But I don't want to get too far off track here. But a lot of those guys say, oh, well, Mark Merrow was completely useless, the man behind the Johnny B. Bad character. There's a YouTube shoot interview or a clip of one where JBL says that about Mark Merrow, to which I would say, that only makes me like Mark Merrow more to know that JBL doesn't like him. And I think that Johnny B. Bad is one of the all-time great WCW-created characters that there ever was. And it was a Dusty Rhodes idea. And I think it gets a lot of crap because of the timing of when the gimmick was created in mid-1991 when a lot of WCW was just unwatchable dreck with Eligante, PN News. But of course, Johnny B. Bad had a run-in with PN News very early on in his tenure. And I, I loved it because he said that PN News, you're nothing but a big, ugly bear. And apparently Dusty told Merrow to look black and act black. And for a long time, everybody assumed that Mark Merrow was actually black because he's very, very dark-skinned. But apparently he must have just been able to get a good tan on most of the time. And his music was so good. And then later, of course, we would get the Johnny B. Bad theme that you can find all over YouTube. But God forbid I can't find the original uh, tune. I knew that he was a Little Richard character or based upon that because my father told me when we were watching WCW probably my dad waiting for the Braves to come on because we liked watching the Braves even though we were Red Sox fans yes I was a Red Sox fan growing up my father enjoyed watching the Braves because of their quality pitching and especially with Tom Glavin who is originally from Bill Ricca Massachusetts so we had a rooting interest in him there So Johnny B. Bad, he's billed from Macon, Georgia. So to further drill home the Little Richard comparison there, uh, that's where Little Richard is from, Macon, Georgia, in case you ever wondered why this guy from Buffalo was billed from Macon, Georgia. It always makes me kind of think about kayfabe hometowns and 
what I would choose for my kayfabe hometown. And it's probably that I would have to choose something in Massachusetts because anything else would seem completely implausible. As much as I'd like to say Las Vegas, Nevada, because I lived there for eight and a half months, that's really just not going to fly. This is one of the best characters that they ever created in WCW. And I'm talking time frame 1989 through the death in 2001. Grant, you know, you had Sting there, the, the Crow Sting. That was a good one, too, I guess. But think about it. This guy was an enhancement talent who Dusty must have saw something in and wanted to give him this gimmick. And it was something that put him solidly on the TV title level for a good number of years, right up through his departure in very early 1996. And there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, he was on that level for a very long time, although he talks about challenging for the cruiserweight or the light heavyweight title, as it was known then, on this show. But it just does... He, I didn't really ever think of him as that because he didn't really do a lot of flying moves. And for whatever reason, because they would play up his Golden Gloves background, I accepted his right hook as a finisher, even though I hate punch moves in wrestling since... I guess technically they're supposed to be illegal. And as a promo, I just enjoyed the hell out of Johnny B. Bad, especially early on where he's really just kind of this hybrid of flamboyant guy like a little Richard. And he's got shades of Muhammad Ali with the, I'm so pretty, I should have been born a little girl, but I'm a bad man. And Teddy Long behind him, but it wouldn't be too long before they would turn him babyface in late 1991, I believe it was. And that's where he would remain for the remainder of his tenure. And when I was writing reviews, when I started writing reviews of wrestling shows just randomly in 2014 on the message board where I would post at the time and we had kind of a classics wrestling thread, I started writing reviews and people expressed that they enjoyed what I had to say. These like little 1,000 word, even as little as like 600, 700 word reviews. And I noticed that Johnny B. Bad seemed to be in every single review or Mark Merrow because I was doing a lot of WWF 1996 but also WCW from 91 to 95, and that is very much the Mark Merrow era. So he became kind of my patron saint of my reviews that I was doing at this time. Now, as I said, Dusty, he uh, created this gimmick, and you know he, he had a lot at stake here, and he was very, uh, <laughs> he was very much going to put this over. So yes, Dusty, if, if there was any doubt, that should remove any that you might have had in your head about Dusty Rhodes being invested in that gimmick. He's facing off against Richard Morton, which causes me to rub my forehead because, wow, he's still keeping that York Foundation name of Richard Morton which is kind of like the only way you can indicate him as a heel because, of course, the Rock and Roll Express were baby faces for so long. And you have this little Richard era, which, fun choice of words there, little Richard era. And he, there's no York Foundation anymore. They're, they're out of the picture, but he's still Richard Morton, and he's still a heel. 
And yeah, there is no doubt he is one of the best baby faces. Of course, playing Ricky Morton is a whole term in internet wrestling culture when talking about a tag match. And he's one of the great draws as part of a tag team that there ever was from the mid-80s. The Rock and Roll Express could easily main event arenas throughout the Crockett territory. But he needed to evolve or he was going to die off, which is what was happening here. Because his hair is exactly the same as it has always been. And it's very much out of fashion at that time, Ricky Morton's hair. He needed to change it in some way. Now, if he wants to keep it, that's fine. But you're going to be doing a lot of jobs for guys because you look kind of like a relic at this point. And his tights, he's still wearing Rock and Roll Express tights, which it seems like he's just still hanging on to that dream of what was there before. And yes, they would go and reunite in Smoky Mountain Wrestling, and they still had some good years left. But on the big stage, I mean, that that was pretty much all over. And it's just really like kind of weird that he n- never like evolved off of what he was, given his obvious talent. Now, if you're a fan of the Rock and Roll Express and you love Ricky Morton as a wrestler and you love the storyline in 1986 where he's challenging Ric Flair and the horsemen rub his face into the cement pavement or whatever, you might want to cover your eyes and ears during this match, which runs 2 minutes and 14 seconds, if you believe it. There's some chain wrestling to start here. But I'm immediately distracted by a thing that Dusty Rhodes says about a new enforcer that's been brought in. Good to see my old friend Ole Anderson taking care of Law and Order. That's crazy (laughs) to hear him refer to Ole as his old friend. Now granted, 12 years had passed since the famous Ole Anderson heel turn on Dusty Rhodes, which is certainly an all-timer just for the fact of Ole afterwards saying that he had spent a year building up Dusty's trust in order to get close to him so that he could then lay the hammer on him and try to end his career. So to hear Dusty say Ole Anderson is an old friend of his is just so weird. But Ole had been brought in to, yes, provide some law and order, as per Bill Watts here. And again, it's he's kind of a relic at this point. In 1992, Ole Anderson seems completely out of place, even in 1990, as just kind of a barely wrestling. I, he did not wrestle very much as part of the Horseman. He did very early in the year, but then he was mostly a talker the rest of the time. He was just kind of the annoying guy in the background, particularly the heel turn on Sting where he keeps interrupting Ric Flair when he tries to speak and is just generally being a dick about it, which I know is hard to believe that Ole Anderson was being an overbearing dick. But yes, they're doing the enforcer-referee thing, which never quite works out as well as you might expect. I, I can't recall a time I remember Ronnie Garvin, 1989. They tried it with Mr. T for a little bit in 1987, but it was probably Mr. T's ego and the fact that his expiration date was long up there. Bad and Morton are cutting a good pace here. And I'm not saying that Ricky Morton couldn't still go at this point. It was just the fact that he was not evolving his look in any sort of way. 
Bad tries to go up to the top rope, but the referee stops him and reminds him, oh yeah, you can't go to the top rope anymore, which is something that's really annoying in that same way that Ronnie Garvin and Greg Valentine kept going for pins in that submission match in 1990, which was okay one or two times, but when they did it the fifth or sixth time, it was like, all right, all right, we get it. You can't do... You can't do pinfalls here, and just as it is in WCW 1992, yeah, you can't come off the top rope. So they, he stops him from doing that, and it forces guys to only go off the second rope, as we'll see later on. And Bad throws the left hand, which finishes off Ricky Morton, Richard Morton, in, as I said, 2 minutes and 14 seconds. And Morton would actually be out the door fairly quickly by the end of July, and he would make his way over to Smoky Mountain Wrestling. And Bad, as I said, he it's a really good character, but he would judge the bikini contest at Beach Blast on this very night. And Jesse Ventura, in one of his lower moments, certainly from his WCW time, would basically call him gay. And that was one of those Johnny B. Bad things that started when he was a heel in 91, where you had the unfortunate thing of Brian Pillman starting a quote faggot chant at the Great American Bash 91 which only kind of makes that pay-per-view look even worse in retrospect and kind of like Goldust Johnny B. Bad becomes a babyface and is a mainstay of the mid-card scene during that time period and despite the remarks you might hear about him in shoot interviews I'm not too concerned about his attitude backstage at least he was an effective guy for a number of years and that's really all I see at least I have heard of the city she loves me lonely as I am together we cry what do you get when you combine a real estate agent with a Shoney's franchisee. Well, of course, you get the Steiner brothers currently in their third run as WCW World Tag Team Champions, having defeated Arn Anderson and Bobby Eaton on May 3rd in Chicago at a house show. Awful lot of tag title switches that WCW did back at that time on house shows. I was kind of surprised to see that in looking it up and yes that is what the two Steiners in case you have kind of checked out on what they're up to these days Scott Steiner uh, (laughs) franchisee of the Shoney's restaurant in Ackworth Georgia and there was a whole thing around the time that that opened where he demolished the previous restaurant by himself where he's in the truck or whatever and is operating and all that Kind of, it was the most Scott Steiner thing you would have expected him to do, and then of course there was another point where he was witness to an attempted murder and was interviewed on the local news, uh, CBS Forty Six, I think it was, down in Atlanta. the The restaurant apparently, I guess, is closer to Marietta, northwest of Atlanta. So perhaps when I go down to Georgia next June, <laughs> I'll take a trip up there and check it out. I was interested in some of the uh, reviews of Scott Steiner's restaurant, mainly because when when you look at like the Google reviews or really any review site and you have like a bad review or even sometimes with a good review, you get the owner reply to the original review. 
And <laughs> I was interested to see if we would get a Scott Steiner promo included in these reviews. I'll just take one example here. There was a person who gave a three-star review and expressed concern about a lack of options at the buffet. And here is the reply. I'm not going to do it in the Scott Steiner voice because I don't think I could do it justice, but it's not exactly what I was thinking it might be. Thank you for taking the time to give us a review. We appreciate your business, and we'll take note to make sure we have a larger selection of vegetables. We appreciate your honesty on what you would, you would like to have on the food bar. We will try to make it happen. As for the shrimp, please feel free to let a manager or your server know. They can quickly have a cook whip up another batch to your liking. Shrimp cooks very quick when cooked properly. Hope to see you again. My guess is that Scott delegated the business of replying to reviews on Yelp and Google and all those places to somebody else. Although maybe he has turned over a new leaf. Let me just take a quick peek at his Twitter account, at Scott Steiner, and see... Oh boy, okay, so let me read the uh, tweet storm from August 20th. It's a series of a couple of tweets here. And uh, maybe we'll get some insight as to whether he's a little bit more calm than he was a decade and a half ago. Candy ass Triple H, still trying to convince WWE Universe he's a tough guy, slamming Jimmy Fallon. You're not on the pay-per-view, hashtag ass clown. In a real fight, my money's on Fallon. Let someone who's actually wrestling promote the pay-per-view and get the mainstream press. Hashtag pass the torch. Hashtag insecure little bitch. WWE wrestlers don't have to wait till Monday for the solar eclipse. They are blocked 365 days a year by that hashtag son of a bitch. Okay, well, it's good to see nothing has changed in Big Papa Pump's universe there. And I kind of mildly agree with him on those points but in any event if he's looking for a cook for his restaurant he's facing off against bob cook and john peterson here and peterson to, he's just kind of a generic southeastern jobber really and i found it funny that he was billed from seattle like that seems really weird to be flying in from seattle to do all these shots in atlanta and probably get paid about 75 to 100 bucks to lose twice on a Saturday night taping or whatever. But Bob Cook, his career is not that of a line cook at Shoney's. It was much more interesting. He had a very long career as an enhancement guy in Florida, in WCW, as we see him here. Even several appearances in the WWF in 1995. But most interestingly, he appeared on some dark matches on WCW pay-per-views at Wrestle War 92 and also portrayed one of the headhunters at Clash 19 who were under masks representing the Dominican Republic alongside fellow American Joe Cruz. So interesting that he was chosen for that slot there. He seems to come back according to the results and wrestles once a year for something called the Malenko Cup. And that is run by a Florida independent promotion. He actually won the second Malenko Cup in June 2011, and that is actually like a battle royal. He also won a tag match that same night in 2011, and his teammate, his tag partner on that evening, the one and only Rusty Brooks. So, hey, Bob Cook, one hell of a career he has carved out for himself, and he does not have to go work at Shoney's 
to make ends meet. Which, by the way, it, quick tangent here with Shoney's. And I'm sure I'd be able to talk about it again at some point. Back, I think it was like 1989, my family, we went on vacation inexplicably to Crossville, Tennessee. And it's actually Fairfield Glade, Tennessee, but Crossville was the real town there. And about the only thing that they had there was a Shoney's. And we probably went there two or three times and ate as a family during the week that we were there. And I always wondered, oh, why did we end up going there? And then I realized, aha, my father, of course, loved playing golf when we would go on vacation. And sure enough, the resort had four 18-hole golf courses within like a five-minute drive of the resort. It was one of the greatest tricks that my dad ever pulled on my mother was scheduling a vacation to basically this place that seemed innocuous enough but really just had a bunch of golf courses around. So I got to play two rounds of golf while I was down there. I was a much better golfer when I was a kid than, than I became later on. But yes, back to the Steiners here. Uh, Scott Steiner, of course, like a lot, like to a lot of kids, say when I was 10, 12 years old, was a bit of a god to me. I, I, I don't know how many times I did the Frankensteiner with the WCW Galoob wrestling figures, not realizing just how hard it was to actually do that move because you need somebody who knows how to take the move which was a real problem here. Although we do see the Frankensteiner, which finishes the match. We see an overhead, belly to belly. So some cool Steiner suplexes here in the match. It does not last very long. It's less than a minute and a half. But you had, of course, the humorous thing later on where they're in the WWF and there's nobody who could take the Frankensteiner. So what they do is they stick Mike Enos, one of the Beverly brothers, under a mask because he's the one guy who can take it. It just reminds me, yes, I know, another baseball reference incoming. When you have a guy who's the personal catcher for a pitcher, thinking the way Tim McCarver's career was extended by five years because Steve Carlton liked pitching to him, or Doug Mirabelli more recently was the only guy who could catch Tim Wakefield's knuckleball for a number of years. So the Boston Red Sox had to keep bringing him back year after year and had to trade for him in an overpayment at one time in order to kind of make the whole Tim Wakefield knuckleball thing work. And so it was with Scott Steiner with the Frankensteiner, but that kind of went out the window when he became really just kind of jacked and the Scott Steiner of the late 90s and early 2000s that we would know and sort of love. My, my love for him with the promos and all that, they're mildly entertaining, but I don't think they're really doing much for me. In fact, they, they're kind of somewhat embarrassing. I know they kind of evoke the superstar Billy Graham promos of the late 70s, but when you watch them, you kind of feel somewhat embarrassed because he gets a little bit vulgar at times. And, you know, it's not really the place... For for that, at least in my opinion. At this time, the two Steiners, and by the way, I love how I've totally ignored Rick Steiner, but he's he's been on this show numerous times in the past, so and he will be again, so he'll have his moment. Steiners are feuding with Terry Gordy 
and Dr. Death Steve Williams, whose gimmick is basically Dave Meltzer in that uh, Japan is better and that is their whole thing here. And they would have a 30-minute draw at the Beach Blast pay-per-view on this night. A match that really I did not like the booking and placement of because it went on last. So you had Sting's match where the falls count anywhere that does not go on last on that night. You don't have Ricky Steamboat and Rick Rude go on last either, which was the best match. And this was one that just kind of went on and on for a long time. 30-minute draw to close the show, which I think was a real problem because you already had one 30-minute match during the show. And even in 1992, you do not want to have that many long matches on the same show, especially when you're going to end the show and not have a finish there. And eventually the Steiners would lose the tag titles shortly before the Great American Bash to Gordy and Williams. One interesting thing during this match uh, is Dusty Rhodes uh, trying to explain the top rope rule in a way that the American only the American dream could explain it this way. You know the referees taking care of business. Ole Anderson must have got with him because in that match just uh, prior to this at that uh, Mr. Anderson took care of, I'm talking about Pee-wee, that took care of business when the guy went to go up on that top rope, and that is a no-no now laid down by the WCW. The good news here is that after Bob Cook takes the Frankensteiner, the Steiners will move on to play Fast Money with Dusty Rhodes here. And it is interesting, the Steiners always had an issue with promos earlier in their career, which is why you would always hear Thunderbolt Patterson wants to manage the Steiner brothers. It was this thing for quite a long time, which never ended up happening. Eventually, they would have Ted DiBiase as their manager during their second run in 1997, which was so just beyond weird to have Ted DiBiase as a babyface manager. You want to talk about stuff that just didn't work. But in this particular promo here, you see maybe a slight shade, a slight specter of the big Papa Pump that was to come. And for them to say the Japanese is better and all this, that's a bunch of bull. My blood, my brother's blood, all these blood here run red, white, and blue. So you can hear it a little bit in his voice. But what Scott is trying to tell me there is that if my make if I do make my way down to Ackworth, Georgia, that there will not be any sushi available at the buffet. Promotional consideration paid for by the following. Hey, pro wrestling announcer Kevin Kelly here. I want to make sure you are all subscribed to all the great feeds here at Place to Be Nation. It's really easy to do. Just head to iTunes or your preferred podcatcher app today and search and subscribe to the Place to Be Nation wrestling feed, which, of course, includes the full archives of The Kevin Kelly Show, the Place to Be Nation pod feed, and the Pro Wrestling Only feed. Subscribe, listen, and then rate us and leave feedback today. And be sure to give Justin your true thoughts. I mean, don't hold back. After all, he is kind of a jerk. Just listen to Scott. Place Nation's JT Rosero and Chad Campbell here. We want to let you know that we have a ton of great podcasts available to you on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and PlaySimation.com, and we offer those to you on three great feeds. 
On the Place to Be Nation wrestling feed, we bring you the Mothership, the original Place to Be podcast, as well as main event to Lucha Afterground and our monthly pay-per-view reaction shows, as well as the Our Vantage Point podcast and Jeff Learns Wrestling. In addition to these full-length shows, we also deliver quick-hit pod blasts on topics old and new. Over on the Pro Wrestling Only feed, we dive deep inside the wrestling business with a stacked army of experts leading the way. The feed features potpourri shows such as This Week in Wrestling, Greetings from Allentown, Psychology is Dead, Puro Puri, Stacy and Elliot's Bogus Journey, and the Military Industrial Suplex. We also have shows that focus intently on certain topics like Letters from Center Stage, Space City, and NWA Classics on Demand Adventure, Through the Years, Strong Style History, Strong Style Story, and Mount Olympus. Plus, the feed has the full archives of legendary shows like Titans of Wrestling, Where the Big Boys Play, Letters from Kayfabe, and much more. And on our popular Place to Be Nation Pop podcast feed, we offer such great shows as the Glenn Butler Podcast Hour Spectacular, Rank and File, PTBN Dadcast, Go Home in a Box, NBA Team, and Lucha Undead, as well as a vertical podcast heaven for comics fans with the hard-traveling fanboys, Sellers Points, Todd Weber's Conversation, Geek and Sassy, and Imaginary Stories Podcasts. You can find all of these current shows plus archives of our past podcasts, including The Kevin Kelly Show, as well by subscribing to all of our feeds on iTunes. And while there, be sure to rate and leave feedback as well. All of these shows plus others available on PlacementNation.com, where we cover pro wrestling, sports, movies, comics, plus in-depth stretch projects and more. Be sure to support our site by using PlacementNation.com backslash Amazon when shopping online and download our free PTB Vintage Vault Refresh eBooks via the links on our site. We also want to thank our friends at Boneheads Wing Bar in West Warwick, Rhode Island and Fall River, Massachusetts, TheHistoryOfWrestling.com, and Scott Keats' Blog of Doom. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Tumblr as well. PlacementNation.com, the only place to be in your pop culture world. Now we have Cactus Jack, and he is taking on Scott Allen, or as I call him, generic WCW jobber bot number 758. One of the things about Cactus Jack that always amused me through the years was, again, the kayfabe hometown which Foley, Mick Foley, chose on purpose, which is Truth or Consequences, New Mexico, which was not always called that, as you may know. It was renamed in 1950 after a quiz show that they hosted an episode of during that year. They had changed their name, and then the next day... They hosted the show as planned. It was originally called Hot Springs, New Mexico. Of course, there are other, I think there's a Hot Springs, Arkansas. So a neat little way to kind of put themselves on the map. And they have a festival, a fiesta, every May each year. It's along the I-25 corridor south of Albuquerque in the state of New Mexico, which is one of my favorite states to visit that's uh i've only been able to really kind of drive through but there's a lot of natural beauty there and i don't think cactus jack chose it for anything other than the kind of fun name of course that is the name of the game show and you might be interested to know that that is what bob barker did on television before the price is right he was the host of Truth or Consequences, the game show in the 50s and 60s, and a lot of 
the, the way it would work on that show is they would ask a question, you'd have almost no time to answer it, and it would be an impossible question. And if you can't get the truth, there would be consequences, and then they would have to do some kind of crazy stunt or whatever. A much more mild version, say, of what Fear Factor was many years later. Because of the stunt aspect of that show, it is kind of fitting that Cactus Jack would adopt that name considering uh, some of the things that he would do both at that time and in the coming years. In fact, Jim Ross during this match says that Jack will hurt himself in hopes of hurting his opponent. And that, that was the thing with Foley is that he was always going to take crazy bumps because he felt that with his body type and for various other reasons that it was the only way for him to truly get noticed. And it did get him noticed, so you can't really fault him for it, although he did go a little bit too far with it after he was already established and really put himself in harm's way when he didn't necessarily have to. The false Count Anywhere match with Sting was a real blast, which no pun intended at the Beach Blast pay-per-view. And the whole story behind it was that Jack put Sting through the ringer so much that he weakened him to the point where Sting would be easy pickings for Vader at the Great American Bash. And of course, what people remember about that bout is how thoroughly, I don't want to say squashed Sting was, but it was a very decisive victory for the monster heel Vader over Sting. It wasn't quite uh, John Cena losing to Brock Lesnar at SummerSlam 2014, but those two matches are kind of linked and compared with each other. And Jack was kind of put in a role setting that up. There'll be more on Jack in the WCW Magazine segment coming up. Matches finished with the double arm DDT, but that's not it as Allen is thrown to the outside and you can see clearly the no mats out on the ring. And Jack, despite all that, goes up to the second rope and dives to the outside with the big elbow and caps it off with the bang bang. And Allen is down and he, uh, he is in need of some desperate assistance here. But we're going to throw it to the WCW Magazine segment hosted by Eric Bischoff, who looks like a bit of a natural in this role. It looks like he could have worked in the WWF in the same role. And of course, famously, he had an audition there and did not get the gig. That would have been before this period in time. So he, do he does look good. He looks like an absolute natural at this time. But I'm kind of distracted by the fact that the WCW logo has kind of rainbow letters there, which I thought, hmm, I don't, I don't remember. I don't remember WCW participating in Pride Month because this is the month of June. It is Pride Month, which did exist back in 1992, obviously not to the same extent that it does now. But just kind of interesting that <laughs> I don't know why I made that connection. Of course, June is Pride Month, if you don't know, because the Stonewall incident in 1969 in New York City occurred in the month of June. So there's a reason why that is the case. So on WCW Saturday night, the previous week, we get a Cactus Jack promo 
and this is kind of interesting in that he demonstrates via props what he is going to do to Sting. He has a wood crate that he says represents Sting's ribs, and then he breaks some of them. But I'm kind of taken by Foley's voice as Cactus Jack, especially during this time. It reminds me of another Foley for whatever reason. Are your ribs and they don't feel good do they no and I know that because I was there the night they were broken and you can lie to the public all you want and say you're a hundred percent but I know that you're still on the men these are your ribs and this is your future wasn't great there oh my first off I am 35 years old I am divorced and I live in a van down by the river. I'm not suggesting that the Matt Foley voice as done by Chris Farley on Saturday Night Live was based off Mick Foley's Cactus Jack character, but I'm also not not suggesting it as well. I'm just throwing it out there for public consumption. Just lay them out side by side, and there you have it. Sting does a quick promo here. He's getting mildly less dorky in his promos Compared with 89 and 91, he's starting to be a little bit more serious at this time. And Vader was such a good foil for him. They would have so many good matches over time at the Bash, at Starcade. Even though sometimes I accidentally call that tournament that concluded at Starcade the King of Cartoons instead of the King of Cable Tournament. But either way, those were good matches for Sting. His rivalry with Vader was certainly much better than the one that Hulk Hogan would have in 1995 with the same guy. We also get an update on Nikita Koloff, who turned down the offer to join the crumbling Dangerous Alliance as presented by Medusa, and he declares his intention to go after the United States title held by ravishing Rick Rude. But I have to say, even though they were crumbling and soon would be a thing of the past, the Dangerous Alliance certainly dodged a bullet here. It would have gone as badly bringing Nikita Koloff in mid-1992 into your group as, let's say, Daryl Strawberry signing that big contract with the Dodgers before the 1991 season when he was off the team by the middle of 1993, by halfway through that contract, or Vince Coleman's contract with the Mets around that same time, which famously had him throwing firecrackers at fans while being driven in a golf cart outside of the stadium. That was, I believe, in 1993, one of the most disastrous years in New York Mets history. They cut back to the Arena and Allen is still down there on the outside, but you, if you look closely, you notice that only fellow jobbers have come out to help him. So there's going to be no, Sting's not going to be out there to help this guy up or anything. You're on your own enhancement, guys. You got to look out for each other.
Jim Ross and Dusty Rhodes throw it now to a clip from Worldwide Wrestling, which you can see the entire match out on YouTube between stunning Steve Austin, whose WCW theme I rather enjoyed, and you just heard during the little bumper there. And he's facing Barry Windham for the TV title. And this, <laughs> why else would they update us on this if there wasn't a title change? I notice right away, as they start playing the clip of the match here, that it says the announcers on the bottom, Jesse Ventura and Tony Schiavone. And Tony Schiavone is spelled wrong. So that's just WCW for you. Schiavone is one of the producers of the television, and they didn't even bother to spell his name correctly. That's one of the things that drives me nuts. It's just, it's just wow. Wyndham still has the taped fist from his injury that he sustained when it was slammed in the car door by the enforcers Arn Anderson and Larry Zbysko at Halloween Havoc the previous October. And Jesse Ventura is definitely annoyed by the taped fist. And he brings it up. If you watch the full match, he brings it up over and over again. And it's hilarious because Tony, who very rarely pushes back on Jesse as part of their great chemistry, he eventually just gets fed up with it at a certain point. Tape fist to the head. Yeah, you're right, Jesse. I think you brought that up about a hundred times in this match already. I don't understand, Shivani, why you continue to complain about why I complain about the tape fist. Yeah, I, I would agree. I think there's enough complaining going on here by you tonight to satisfy us both. I like this feisty Tony Shivani pushing back against Jesse Ventura in the way that Gorilla Monsoon sometimes would. But of course, Tony is not a wrestler, so Jesse doesn't quite respect him in the same way as he did Tony. Was that a forearm or a closed fist? I couldn't tell. That was a forearm. Well, why would I ask you, Shivani? Of course, in your opinion, it was a forearm. I'd expect nothing less. This match does not exactly have the prettiest finish in the world as Wyndham drops kind of a leg on the back of Austin's neck and goes for the pin. Austin has his foot on the rope right away before even the one count. And Bill Alfonso, who is our referee here, actually counts to three. By the way, second straight week, we got Bill Alfonso refereeing a Barry Wyndham match. So interesting note there. He counts to three and crowd pops for it and Heyman, Paulie dangerously outside the ring points that the foot is on the rope so he waves it off and then it's just kind of they meander around Wyndham looks like he's setting him up for the superplex but Paul E jumps in the ring and as he does that everybody turns their back Austin grabs the belt and even as Alfonso is kind of looking at him kind of hits Wyndham in the throat with the belt and knocks Wyndham into Alfonso, which uh, it didn't come off very well on TV. And he picks up the one, two, three, and is the new, once again, WCW World Television Champion. And Jesse credits Austin for winning here without the help of Paul E, despite the fact that Paul E came into the ring and distracted everybody, which I don't know why Bill Alfonso would allow he him to just jump in the ring there with no consequences at all so Austin he won the TV title originally almost the second he came in in 1991 which told you that they had very high expectations for him 
But of course, much like you would see throughout WCW's history, yes, they would kind of make something of Steve Austin, but they wouldn't maximize the value that they had in him. This is the NWA World Tag Team Tournament Countdown. I'm Eric Bischoff, along with Lance Russell, taking you on the road of the historic first-round competition, the NWA World Tag Team Tournament, coming your way this Monday, June 22nd, at the Clash of the Champions, 8.05 Eastern, 7.05 Central. As I had mentioned before, Bill Watts was out of the loop of wrestling from 1987 up through 1992. In this effort to bring back the NWA name, when it had about as much value then as it has now with Billy Corgan of Smashing Pumpkins now running things for whatever the hell the NWA is. It's just he was thinking of just in a different time. It had no value then. And why not try and build up the name of WCW instead of reverting back to this NWA thing which was just long gone by this point worry about your own brand don't try to bring back a brand that was previously there and honestly didn't have any value at all at that time and you have this tag team tournament which just duplicates what you have with the WCW tag team titles but at the very least we get a segment here with Eric Bischoff and Lance Russell As they run down the tournament, which, as they mentioned, would start at the Clash of Champions on Monday night. Not a live clash. They had already taped the show prior to Beach Blast. So we got the clash taped before the pay-per-view, but airing afterwards. So really kind of a tricky thing there. But a lot of it was this tag team tournament. And they go through some of the (laughs) entrants in this. And again, just like that Pat O'Connor Memorial Tag Team Tournament from Starcade 1990, they try to give it an international flair for whatever reason. And in this case, I love how they bring in these two guys, the O'Days, a father-son team from Australia. So no relation to Orioles submarining right-hander Darren O'Day. (laughs) But Lance says that they have unusual offense. So, boy, look forward to seeing them. I haven't watched Clash 19 in preparing. I think I watched maybe like the first few minutes and then I had to go and do something else. But the Steiners match versus the Puerto Rican team didn't even happen as the Steiners won by forfeit. So, interesting that they were promoting that there. The European team, although technically I guess it was representing Hungary, was Joe and Dean Malenko. And I think this is probably the first appearance by Dean Malenko on WCW television. They did not go much of anywhere in this tournament. And then another interesting match is the two Silver Kings representing Mexico taking on the Freebirds, which would be Jimmy Jam Garvin and Michael P.S. Hayes. And if ever there was a freaking Styles clash, that sounds like one of them there the canadian team here is actually oh boy chris benoit alongside beef wellington not the (laughs) not the dish but rather the wrestler and of course it is somewhat notable in that 
the Benoit murders of his family occurred on the same week and weekend that Wellington himself died. And they faced off against Jushin Thunder Liger and Brian Pillman. And the story there, of course, was how well can they gel and coexist as a team given their natural rivalry that had started in later part of 1991 over the light heavyweight title. So they're really just kind of giving analysis on this and how Gordy and Williams have been wrestling in Japan and they look primed for this. And of course, they would end up winning the NWA tag team titles at the Bash 92. Again, I don't under, under, never quite understood their obsession with tag team tournaments and just doing tag team wrestling at all like Battle Bowl at Starcade 91 where you're just mixing names in a hat and you end up with Jushin Liger teaming with Bill Kazmaier. And it's like, how the hell is that going to work? In in practice, in theory, whatever. You're gimmicking the thing and you're going to pair those two guys together? Yes, Southern Tag Team Wrestling is among the best wrestling that there is when it's done right. But let's face it, you don't need eight of those matches on a single show. But speaking of tag team wrestlers and greats from the tag team division, we have Arn Anderson with Dusty Rhodes now, and he actually expresses his desire, Arn does, to break away from being in tag teams as his focus is now on Sting and the world heavyweight title, and that he wants to do something now for Arn Anderson. And we do get a minute-long promo from Arn, and if it's an Arn Anderson promo, it's going to be played on this show. Well, dream number one, you're the greatest in the world at playing mind games. That's always been your advantage, but today you can't get inside my head because, yes, I am focused. For once, I'm going to stand up and be the man that I've always said I was. I'm going to do something for me. No more tag teams. I'm going to do something for Arn Anderson. You see, I can't outshine Sting. I can't outglamorize Sting. And I can't get that home field advantage that the fans across this country give Sting wherever he goes. But I tell you what I can do, I learned a long time ago. The way to buck home field advantage as you give the home fans nothing to scream about. The only way to beat you, Sting, is to take you out of the air. In the air, with that stinger splash, you can beat anybody. But down on that mat, you're just a regular man, and you bleed just like I do. Anything that bleeds, I can beat. Another good promo from Arn Anderson, who is undoubtedly, when you break it down and you think about it, and this occurred to me during the Greatest Wrestler Ever project from Pro Wrestling Only, that Arn Anderson is certainly a top 10 promo of all time because I love the real style he brings to the table. Now, with that being said, his line of anything that can bleed, I can beat, I thought, okay, well, that's kind of interesting in that that means that Arn Anderson's nemesis would be a jellyfish because a jellyfish is an example of an animal that does not have blood. So I am kind of surprised that they didn't make Arn Anderson do a job to a jellyfish. Although, truth be told, that would have been less embarrassing than that time he jobbed to the renegade. Carry each other, carry each other. 
final bout features two guys who are definitely not the same in Tom Zink, the Z-Man, against Greg the Hammer Valentine, who is in kind of his last gasp on the big stage. Of course, he still wrestles up to today. Even in 2017, he has four matches on record from what I've been able to ascertain, and it's probably more than that, working in various independent indies. We also have Ole Anderson serving as the referee in this one. For Tom Zank, you know, the most I can say about him is that at least his music in WCW is good for the purpose of playing sports highlights underneath it. Uh, It seemed to be good for at least that purpose. I was reminded listening to the Between the Sheets podcast that Tom Zank got busted for a few things in 1991 that might have derailed his push. It was not exactly the best time to be busted with steroids. I mean, the marijuana, that's one thing. I mean, we can have a whole debate about that, and society has evolved and changed over the last quarter century with regards to its views on that. But getting busted for steroids in 1991 was a pretty terrible idea. Now, you have Greg Valentine here, who was in the WWF as recently as the Royal Rumble. He might have been a substitute in that for somebody. I I can't quite remember, but it was good that he was there so that he could have his little moment with Ric Flair during that match. But as I said, yes, it's a bit of a last gasp for Valentine, the old crafty veteran on the big stage. He had a match at Beach Blast on this very day in 92 against Buff Bagwell that... I particularly enjoyed as a kind of the old master teaching the young dog some tricks, that sort of match, and he won cleanly and decisively. But I didn't enjoy it as much as the guy in the crowd at Beach Blast. And you may not have noticed this watching that show if you ever have. There's a guy wearing overall shorts. So they're like overalls, but they stop above the knee, who is just openly marking out for Valentine during that entire match. And he's one of my favorite random fans I've ever seen in the crowd. Just for his reactions to Greg Valentine in 1992 and for the outfit he's wearing. I'll try and get a screen cap of that and post it on my Twitter as one of the footnotes to the show. So Valentine is sort of like Jack Morris in a way here. Jack Morris around this time was really in his last gasp on the big stage, pitching for the Toronto Blue Jays in 1992. Of course, the previous year he had pitched that great Game 7 of the World Series against the Atlanta Braves going 10 innings, which is pretty much unheard of, and I apologize for triggering Chad Campbell (laughs) by bringing up that Atlanta Braves, although he might have been too young at that point to actually remember it. So, as a uh, unfortunate aspect of this match, we have Terry Taylor on commentary as he was teaming with Valentine at around this point, which would change down the road as Valentine would team with Dick Slater more than Taylor because I think he saw that that might be a better fit for him. And Taylor, for all of his, you know, Red Rooster and all of his foibles I just simply do not like his voice and I don't know if it's just that I've listened to more Terry Taylor recently where he's talking whether it be his promos but 
his voice almost is like cracking, like he's still going through puberty or something. It, there's just something about it. And maybe this is what bugged Dusty Rhodes and what bugged everybody about Terry Taylor over time is just that he doesn't exactly have the strongest, deepest voice. He's not exactly Mike Rowe, the guy from 30 Jobs. He's not Liev Shriver doing the HBO 24-7. I mean, listen to him here talk about Ole Anderson as a ref and his, you know, why he doesn't need a special enforcer in his matches. I think it's great because mm-hmm. I never broke the rules. I never mm-hmm. had to. I was so much better than everybody I wrestled. Mm-hmm. I think it's going to be good mm-hmm. because it's going to make my career longer mm-hmm. and more glorious than it already has been. Oh, shut the hell up, Terry. This really annoyed me because, as I said, I like Dusty on commentary. And to replace him with Terry Taylor is just such an incredible downgrade here. Taylor also mentions the top rope rule and says that he doesn't go to the top rope, which just kind of reminds me, he's like a quarterback who constantly checks down, who never throws the ball down the field more than 15, 20 yards, kind of like uh, what Alex Smith was before this year, although I'm actually kind of an Alex Smith fan anyway, before he destroyed the Patriots even in, in week one there. You get some flashes of the Valentine offense, and this is a long enough match for Valentine to get warmed up. No, it doesn't go the full 15 minutes or anything like that, but Valentine with a double underhook suplex at one point. (laughs) Okay, I will give Terry Taylor one credit for one line. He does suggest that maybe don't hit the Z-Man in the head because there's nothing there. So uh, he kept it simple there, so good one by him. Get an S.D. Jones Memorial mischarge by the Z-Man, and that leads to the Hammer Valentine shoulder breaker, another move that was uh, you saw from him for many, many years. A backslide by Zink for a two-count, but Valentine at that point is definitely close to warmed up. He's He's been throwing in the bullpen for quite a while, so he's quite ready to go. And by the way, if you think my analogy comparing Greg Valentine to Jack Morris is off base, just consider the controversial comments made by Valentine back in 2015 where he expressed complete disdain for women's wrestling and women's MMA, saying that they should be in the kitchen washing dishes, which I thought was really strange because apparently Valentine doesn't know of a thing called the dishwasher where you just put in the dishes and then you push, you put in a little soap and then you hit start and then it kind of does it for you. So maybe somebody should fill him in on that. Uh, Jack Morris, of course, didn't exactly have the most enlightened view of women either. When it came to women reporters in the locker room, he said that he refused to talk to women when he was naked, quote, unless they are on top of me or I am on top of them. Jack caught some crap for that, and he failed to make the Hall of Fame, which was actually justified because he had an earn run average of nearly four while pitching in an era with much lower offense than there was in the 1990s. Back to the match, Valentine uh, grabs the rope on a pin try after being drop kicked so he instead of putting his foot on the rope he's able to just reach back with his arm and prevent the pin that way we get another (laughs) sd jones memorial charge miss by the z-man and he actually hits his knee on the outside so he goes flying out of the ring and hits his knee on the unpadded concrete 
on the outside of the ring. So, of course, the alarm bells go off at this point when you have a guy who has just hurt his knee in a match against Greg Valentine, one of the masters of the figure four leg lock over time. If you're going to name five people who popularized that hold and kind of when you, when you think of that hold you think of Greg Valentine you think of Ric Flair you probably don't think of the Miz I'll just say that I, I love the Miz but you know let's let's be real here so figure four Valentine grabs the rope for leverage the way Ric Flair uh, would always do for years and years but he is caught doing it by Ole so it is broken up goes for it again and he gets busted with the inside cradle the same thing that beat him at Wrestlemania 4 tournament by Randy Savage but that's only a two count here and then very this, this might be the the night of the strange finish here Valentine just gets a forearm smash to Zink while uh, coming off the ropes Valentine coming off the ropes and he gets a three count that way so just I, <laughs> very strange Valentine of course a guy who harkens back to the late 70s and early 80s and yes he was effective all through the 1980s so when you have Bill Watts here and he's trying to turn back the clock who better to give a little bit of shine to than a guy like Greg the Hammer Valentine whose best years were really between 1977 and 1986. So it all kind of makes sense of why you have this little, like I said, last gasp for the hammer. He's hitting Z-Man in the head. That's not going to hurt Z-Man. There's nothing in there. Well, you're in a belligerent mood here today. Also in a belligerent mood is the American Dream, Dusty Rhodes. And I've had some fun with him as a broadcaster on both this show and the previous show playing the Family Feud theme song underneath when he is saying. And he has a closing promo here that, well, I'm not going to play the Family Feud thing under it because it is a lot more serious in nature because he's doing it on behalf of his son, Dustin, which is interesting because, of course, years later you'd have the famous promo of, I neglected you in preparation for the war games in 1994 one of the most heartfelt promos there ever was at the Clash of the Champions there with Dusty and Dustin. But this one is actually pretty notable because Dusty goes a little bit too far and TBS actually has to bleep one of the things he has to say. Well, let me tell you, Jimbo, you know, Dustin came to me a long time ago and he said, Daddy, you just about done all you can do. He said, you're getting a little weak in the knees. I had to take him down. He said, your back is hurting. I had to put him on his head. He said, you're, you're talking with a slur and a list. I said, I always did. And then he took me down and tied me up. So Terry Taylor, if you want some of the kid, all you got to do is jump on him, baby, because he'll tear your right up. Dusty showing some attitude there of sorts. And I guess I could have played the Family Feud music underneath because if you've been watching the program, since Steve Harvey became the host. There's been a lot more kind of sexual innuendo. And yes, that is actually the correct use of the term innuendo for you wrestling podcast fans. Is There's just been a lot more kind of racy stuff on Family Feud lately. It's, it's been the exact opposite of family. It's been a little bit more adult-oriented. So I think the Family Feud, if you look at it now, they're going through their own attitude era. 
So look for them in a couple of years to just have a crisis of self-confidence and then flounder for a number of years before John Cena (laughs) becomes the host of Family Feud and carries them for the next decade or so. And that's actually it for this edition of WCW Saturday Night. And we don't have much in the way of YouTube comments because when I had started my research for this program, there were two editions of this show that were listed on YouTube. And one of them got removed by a person who was dumb enough to start posting the uh, matches from the WWE unreleased DVD series. So that one got taken away. But luckily there was another one there for me. And we only have one comment and it's about... Arn Anderson's promo style, which, you know, is well established anyway. So right now, I'm going to do a segment that is kind of seasonal in nature, and maybe from time to time when we don't have YouTube comments to go on, what I'm going to do is a new segment called Vinny Vegas Corner, where I pick NFL games for this coming weekend. Now, I'm only going to pick three games here. Because if I were to go through all 16 or however many there are, we would be here for a while. And I like to keep the show under a certain amount of time. Kick it off in Charm City, Baltimore, Maryland here as the 2-1 Baltimore Ravens are taking on the visiting 2-1 Pittsburgh Steelers. Of course, these two teams have had a classic rivalry dating back about a decade now with established head coaches who have been there for... As long as you can possibly remember, John Harbaugh has been there since 2008, and Mike Tomlin has been there since the 2007 season. These games always tend to be pretty close, and the Ravens, and this has nothing to do with my Orioles fandom, it's pretty much separate, the Ravens and the Orioles to me. Baltimore has been a very good home team over the years, particularly in this series. And with the Steelers, I'm very concerned about their locker room issues after the little national anthem thing. And after last week, it's starting to kind of come out what, how that impacted certain teams and that maybe it was a bit more divisive internally than it had seemed originally. We got a point spread of Pittsburgh favored by three. I'm going to go with the Baltimore Ravens plus three here at home against Pittsburgh. We have the 3-0 Atlanta Falcons at at home against the surprising 2-1 Buffalo Bills, who I do think are actually not that bad. A lot of times people consider the non-Patriots part of the AFC East to be purely doormats. I don't think the Bills are that bad because they do a number of things well. I think Tyrod Taylor is a pretty decent quarterback. I mean, he's not, you know, overtly terrible like some guys in the league. But they have a really, really big task here going into Atlanta. A Falcons team that barely escaped last week against the Lions by the hair of their chinny-chin-chins. And the Falcons are only an eight-point favorite at home. And I like them big over the Bills this week. And it's no disrespect to the Buffalo Bills, but I think that the Falcons will probably run up 35 points on them. And I don't think the Bills will be able to keep up. The final game is in the late window at 4-something Eastern time. The Philadelphia Eagles are visiting the Los Angeles Chargers, although I wrote SD down here for San Diego. Maybe I'm thinking of SD Jones as well. The Chargers have just been really brutal 
so far, 0-3, and the Eagles are at 2-1, escaping against the Giants on a 61-yard field goal at the final gun last week. And the Chargers seem to have no home field advantage playing in that 20,000, 27,000-seat stadium in Carson, California. And that place is just going to be filled with Philadelphia Eagles fans who are transplanted out to Los Angeles. And they're actually, you're getting a point by the Eagles. The Chargers generally play close games, and I don't think that... I just don't see any way that the Chargers are pulling out these close games. They just find new ways to lose each week. And the Eagles are on a roll. They're feeling good. So I like the Eagles getting one point in San Diego this week. Now for next week's show, and I'm picking this one in part because of the year that it's in, but also because I'm not so sure that this is going to be available on the YouTubes all that much longer if you catch my drift here. It is a WWF show from 1999, and before you roll your eyes, let me assure you that this is earlier in the year and not, you know, in the middle of the year where it was particularly Russo-rific, although he certainly has his impact on this show. And it's a completely different show that I have not covered yet. It'll be WWF Sunday Night Heat from January 31st, 1999. And that date should ring familiar to some as that is the date of the famous halftime heat empty arena match between The Rock and Mankind for the WWF World Heavyweight title. So we'll be taking a look at that. I'll be reminiscing about watching the Super Bowl. That would have been Super Bowl 34 or 33, 34, 33 it would have been between the Atlanta Falcons and the Denver Broncos, which I I hate to keep picking on Atlanta here, bringing up the 91 World Series and various Falcons Super Bowls through the time, but I did pick the Falcons. So, and there's actually more on that show. We get Shane McMahon as an announcer. We have, you know, other matches that they had taped earlier to air on the program. So, Do tune in next week for another exciting episode of Greetings from Allentown.